Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please do get in touch at hello at hopeharrogate.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. So we are really in a part two this morning. If you weren't here last week, this won't make 100% sense. So what you'll need to do is go away afterwards and watch last week's talk and then it all the pieces will come together. Does that make sense? So I could go through everything that I uh, said last week, all the points I made and drew out of the passage, and I will do some of that, but I, I preached for 46 minutes last week, and I appreciate that's a very long time, especially on screen. So I'm going to try and be shorter this week, but that means not repeating myself about lots of things. Um, so if it doesn't make sense and you haven't seen last week's, that's where you can go to piece the bits together. But here's the deal. When I was 16, I sat in my GCSE geography class and my teacher looked at us and he said, class, if you can get the word sustainable into your exam paper, your answers uh, and by sustainable, meaning uh, using resources in such a way that they don't run out, then you will get a really good mark. And so I did get the word sustainable into my exam answer and I did get a really good mark. I then did A-level geography and the same teacher, he said to us, class, if you can get the word stewardship into your exam answer, you will get a really good mark. And by stewardship, what we mean is not just only using what we can so that resources don't run out, but it means taking good care so that the world around us flourishes. He said, if you can get stewardship, if you can get that context into your exam answer, you will get a really good mark. I did. And I did. I then went to university uh, and I studied a slightly odd degree that was half geography and half maths. Of course. And um, within my geography modules uh, in year two, I studied a module about climate change, historic climate change uh, through to modern climate change. It was absolutely fascinating. In my third year, I did a module all about sustainable world cities, and I did a big project on Shanghai and what they were doing to try and make uh, their um, development more sustainable. And that was 2005, 2006. Really interesting. What I'm saying is I have been aware of environmental issues for all of my adult life. Uh, But the reality is that being aware of them and having written exam answers about them and essays about them and having studied them had not changed the way I lived. So though I understood that there was a climate and a big environmental problem, an enormous one, I wasn't doing anything about it. Uh, And reflecting on that now, the fact that I knew but wasn't acting, uh, I think there are two big reasons for that separation. So the first would be, as I said last week, we have to feel before we truly think. So even for me, I'm quite a logical person. Uh, I'm quite analytical. The other half of my degree was maths. Uh, And my brain can function very quickly uh, and can get all sorts of concepts. But here's the deal. My brain, it moves me much more slowly than my heart moves me. You can convince me of something, but it won't necessarily change what I do. But if you can move my heart, either positively with vision and faith and hope and love, 
or negatively with fear, that will affect my actions much more quickly. Uh, and I would say exactly the same is true for you. Even if you think you're more logical and analytical than me, actually, it's only when we feel that we truly start to think and to act differently. Secondly, uh, I did not have very much of a scriptural understanding of the situation. I didn't really know what the Bible has to say about environmental issues. For me at that point in my life, I, I understood we need to tell everyone about Jesus and that has eternal significance. And so care for creation, although it matters, was a long way back in my priority list. Now, I have not changed in my conviction that we need to tell everybody about Jesus and that it has eternal significance. But over the last few years, my understanding about care for creation has dramatically altered. Uh, and hence why we've put this message into this series in Nehemiah. You see, um, building a community of hope is the name for this series. And if we're building a community of hope, that means that we're being a community of justice, because without justice, there isn't hope. Uh, and that's not that we all get fancy wigs uh, and little hammers and that we get to start dishing out punishment. A judgment, that is God's alone. But what we do is we partner with him in restoring justice. So that means restoring those who have been the victims of injustice through empowering people and, and redeeming situations. It also means bringing the whole of life back into his wise order. Justice is ultimately about God uh, and it's about his character and it's about his grace at work. And friends, the hope that we live with, it's not just a message of spiritual escape for believers. The situation is not that we will all disappear off to some other place. And so all we need to be concerned about is how our harp playing and cloud sitting is. Now, we have a, a message of hope for all things. That's what the Bible says. Colossians chapter one, you'll probably be quite familiar with this passage. It says the son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation for in him all things, say with me, all things were created. Blah, 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 verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's the Son, Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself what? All things. Not just humanity, but to reconcile the all things that he has made. And if we had more time and I was actually preaching on Colossians and not Nehemiah, we would read that whole section. And I would show you that all things is mentioned a number of times as we go through that incredible picture of Jesus and God and how they're working for the reconciliation of all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We do have to tell everyone about Jesus, friends. But the message of Jesus is about more than just people experiencing some spiritual salvation. The earth will not be burned up. Heaven is not about spiritual beings sitting on clouds. The earth will be renewed. The scriptures say it's going to be reconciled to God. It says that God is going to transform this earth, the one around you right now. God's going to transform it into heaven. 
and we're called to care for it. We're called to care for God's creation and even to contribute to, to that transformation process in the meantime. Environment is not just a political matter. It's not just a scientific matter. It's not just an area of study for geographers and ecologists. Friends, this is not even just a theological question, though it is a very important issue in all of those areas. When we're considering the environment and care for creation, it is a matter of justice. It's a matter of God's wise ordering. And when humanity abandons that ordering, it becomes a matter of injustice. And so this morning, my plan is that I want to spend a few minutes spelling out that injustice, because that might seem for you quite a large claim. Uh, and we're going to do that much like we did last week with race. Uh, then I want to look at some of the major components of a scriptural understanding of environmental justice. What does the Bible have to say? Uh, and then I want to finish very practically as we did last week. So I hope that's okay. Fancy coming along for the ride? Get some nods? Everyone okay? Um, if you've got your Bible, why don't you turn to Nehemiah chapter 5 and we'll read it together. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry, says Nehemiah. I pondered them in my mind and then I accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let's stop charging interest and give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, olive groves and houses. And also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said in this way, may God shake out of their house and their possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person 
be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All the men, all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me and every 10 days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. He supplied it himself, that's what he's saying. Remember me with favour, my God, for all I have done for these people. We are looking over these two weeks at the issues of justice. And as I've already said, we're looking this morning at the question of environmental justice. And I said last week, a big part of the problem in Nehemiah chapter five is that the wealthy are using God's stuff, in their case, money, for their own advantage at the disadvantage of the community, rather than disadvantaging themselves to advantage the community. And the link to environmental justice is very simple. It's a travesty because many are using the Earth's resources, which are ultimately God's, for their own advantage at the disadvantage of the global community and of creation itself. This is not just about climate change, though for the record, I'm utterly convinced that we're in a climate emergency and radical action is required yesterday in order to do something about it. But this isn't about climate change. This is about the whole issue of environmental justice. We're talking about pollution. We're talking about water scarcity, the mistreatment of animals as they're bred for meat and materials. We're talking about habitat destruction, the loss of biodiversity, deforestation, the way plastic has infiltrated every part of the world's ecosystem and much, much more. Environmental injustice is enormous. It's enormous. This is an injustice. And there is, just like Nehemiah 5, a great outcry from those who are affected. But it's a little bit different to the outcry about racial injustice that we saw last week. Because I'm not convinced we hear this great outcry quite as clearly. Part of the reason we don't hear the great outcry against environmental injustice is that the distance is so great. Those paying the price for the overuse, 
the misuse and the abuse of the earth, of Earth's resources, uh, they tend to live a long way away. Uh, they're also generally among the poorest in the world, the least able to mitigate the effects of pollution and a changing climate, and unjustly have contributed the least to the problem. The rich and affluent global North and West, which is a fancy way of saying you and I, have contributed the most, yet suffer the least consequences. The poor and the less developed global South have contributed the least, but they suffer the most. That is, friends, injustice. And if you don't end up seeing that care for creation is a God-commanded and valuable end in its own right this morning, then I will be slightly disappointed. But even if you don't, then perhaps seeing the way it overlaps with economic injustice and racial injustice will be enough to convince you that the status quo is not okay and that something needs to change. That we need to change. But it's not just the distance. That means we don't hear the great cry of injustice very clearly. It's also the fact that much of our overuse of the world's resources is in pursuit of comfort and convenience. And so we are reluctant to hear a great outcry when responding to it will probably make us uncomfortable and will ultimately be inconvenient. You may have seen that uh, Al Gore documentary a couple of decades ago, An Inconvenient Truth. And that reason, of course, is the heart of why injustice endures, not just in this reason, but in every reason of injustice, in every occurrence of injustice. Friends, correcting injustice requires the advantage to use what they have for the good of community above themselves. That's what we see in Nehemiah 5. It's what we saw last week uh, in the, when it comes to racial injustice. And that's what we're seeing today about the environment. So last week we saw these three reasons uh, that Nehemiah points out to show why the wealthy and what the wealthy were doing is not okay. Why what the wealthy were doing is not right. And we use them to look at racial injustice. We saw that the Nehemiah points at the law. He says, you're charging your own people interest. And that's specifically forbidden by God in the law. We saw that they were betraying their identity as the people who were redeemed from slavery, who were rescued from slavery and now rescued others from slavery. The very core of their identity was being betrayed by what they were doing. And we saw that they were violating their witness to the nations around. The nations around were laughing at them. They were turning their noses up at them. They were scorning them for the way that they were, um, in a sense, extorting their own people with their interest payments so that children ended up being sold into slavery. They were supposed to be a light to the world, but they looked just like the world and the world laughed at them. And so we're going to do the same. We're going to look at these same three reasons, uh, but in a more combined way this morning because I think we can do all three at once. 
Let's read together, shall we? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and to 31. You'll be very familiar with this passage. Uh, I just want to draw out a few points that are going to help us see the law, our identity and our witness in relation to environmental justice. Genesis 1 says, so God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We used that last week to talk about uh, the equal worth and dignity and value that every human being has. God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Oh, let's go back to this slide, shall we? So I want to point out just a few things from this Genesis passage to show that environmental in injustice is not right. Number one, creation is not neutral. It is very good. It has worth and value in and of itself. Number two. I'm saying number one and number two, and they don't match the one and two on the screen, so I'm just going to lose that bit. Number two, creation is not just for humanity. Genesis 1 tells us that creation is God's and that he shares it with us. And that actually he creates it in such a way that it's interconnected and it relies upon uh, itself. It, the bits of creation rely upon one another. Thirdly, humanity is made in God's image. And as I said, as I was reading it last week, we saw how that was about the equal value and dignity of every man, woman and child. There is another way to understand this language, too. And it's this. You may have heard this before. Uh, in the ancient world in the Middle East where the Bible was written, uh, rulers in those times, when they conquered a new area, they would set up statues or images of themselves in that new area so that the citizens would know who rules, who's in charge. And uh, they would put them on the boundary of their territory so that anyone coming into the land would see the statue and know who was in charge in this space. And probably, hopefully, be intimidated by the statue that was put there. And so when Genesis is written to these people in this culture and says that God makes humanity in his image and puts them in his creation, there is a very real sense of what's being communicated here, that God has put humanity as his image into creation to reveal God to the world, to reveal who's in charge, to show creation who rules and reigns? Hint, it's not humanity. It's God. 
Uh, but we don't do that just as dumb statues, just by sitting there. No, God also commissions humanity to join him in his divine activity of filling the earth, which is what's been going on in the previous days. He forms and fills the different areas of creation and ruling it. God rules over it and he invites humanity to share with him in that ruling, in having dominion is the old fashioned word. And some people have read this section as separating out humanity from the rest of creation, with humanity up here in significance and creation down here, as if creation only exists for our needs to serve us because we're up here and we rule. But friends, let me ask you a question. What did Jesus say that true ruling was about? This is call and response doesn't work, does it, on the Internet? But I, I trust that what you all said was that if anyone wants to be the greatest, he must become the servant of all. You know, true ruling is about caring for. It's about lifting up. It's about cherishing. If anyone wants to be the greatest, they must become the least. This call to humanity is not to become an abusive ruler over creation. It's to become a gardener. I always think there's a brilliant poetic picture in the fact that Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener in, on the Easter Sunday. God invites humanity to share with him in caring for creation, the garden that he's created in Genesis. Humanity is entrusted as a steward of creation, to care for creation, to allow creation to flourish. This is the law. And in a Jewish understanding, of course, Genesis 1 is part of the law. The law for the Jews is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's not just the Ten Commandments or the bits where God's saying, do this, do this, do this. No, it's the whole story of their origins, the whole story of how they came to be. So this is the law. It's also the command of God. Oh, sorry. It's the law. It is the command of God. It also speaks about our identity. We're those in the image of God who care for creation. And it tells us about our witness. We reveal God to the world around us. When we act in ways which are not environmentally sustainable, friends, we're not following God's instructions. We're not being true to who he's made us to be. And we're not fulfilling our call to reveal God to the world around us. I always think there's a sharp irony in that as Christians, we keep telling the world that there is a creator. But then we often live just like the world does without caring for creation. That should hurt when we hear it. Let me put it a totally different way for us. Jesus taught us how to pray, didn't he? How did he teach us to pray? What do we say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask you a question. Are the resources of the new creation going to be used up because of people's selfish choices? Because surely that's what God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven would look like here and now. 
Will people be able to access safe and clean water in the kingdom of God? Is heaven's climate going to be altered by human activity? Man, that's a different way of looking at the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? I come to think that we have narrowed its scope too far. And that as we've narrowed the scope of our understanding of what the gospel is and what the kingdom of God is and what God's call on us is, as we've narrowed that scope, it's damaged our understanding of God and his kingdom and the world in the process. We have to get a truly biblical and God and God's perspective back into our understanding. Tom Wright He comments on Romans chapter eight, which is the other passage I could have preached this message from. And this is in his book, which is well worth a read, called Surprised by Hope. And he says the whole creation is waiting in eager longing, which is what Romans eight says, not just for its own redemption, its liberation from corruption and decay, but for God's children to be revealed. He writes, in other words, for the unveiling of those redeemed humans through whose stewardship creation will at last be brought back into that wise order for which it was made. Romans 8 tells us creation is groaning. It also tells us that we are groaning and that the spirit inside of us is groaning for the wise order of God to be restored to the earth. It tells us that it's us, the sons and daughters of God, that are going to restore that wise order in partnership with God himself as an ever increasing movement towards the moment when Jesus comes back and the true wise ordering of creation is reestablished as Jesus is enthroned king in sight of everyone. And every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. This is not just about the salvation of some spirit or soul. It's so much bigger. And it's very easy to get totally overwhelmed by the scope of the task of caring for creation. I get it. But friends, it's not an optional extra. Care for God's earth is not something just for the liberals over there. It's not just for the kinos. It's a core part of God's command to us of our identity as his children and as our witness to the world. When we don't care for creation, we're forgetting what God has called us to. We're forgetting who we are. We're failing to show the world around us a key aspect of what God is like. It is an injustice when the church neglects its duty on this issue. So let's get practical. Undoing injustice. How do we undo injustice. Number one, we've got to choose to feel the pain of the injustice. I could have sat here today and I could have listed statistic after statistic. I could have told you story after story, study after study, shown you photo after photo. The reality is intellectual knowledge will not change your action. Feeling the pain of injustice is a key Uh, component to seeing action in this area and we have to be prepared to feel the pain of the injustice in this area. I want to suggest you know with great humility 
and great gentleness that one of the difficulties with hearing and feeling the pain of this injustice is that we fear for our quality of life if we start to do anything about it because we know this is going to cost us and so we count up the financial cost and our reluctance to hear the cry of injustice grows so that we just block it out we we dullen it with our comfort and our convenience but what I want to say is that our story as a family is that as we felt the pain of this injustice and as we've looked into the things we can do and as we've started to do those things, we found it to be an incredibly fulfilling adventure. Caring about God's creation has made us as a family more creative. It's bonded us together. It's made us to try new things. It has discipled us into a more godly approach to money because our money isn't ours, it's God's. Like sure, in materialistic terms and numbers, our quality of life has probably been reduced by it. Of course, there's things that we would love to do that we can't do because we're choosing to use that money or that time or that brain space for other things. But then of course, we're called to be generous with our money, for example, anyway. And for us, tithing to the local church has already made a significant dent in the numbers and statistics if we're only judging this in materialistic terms to our quality of life. But Jess and I, we would honestly say that in kingdom terms, our quality of life is flourishing as we have chosen to address this injustice and as we've chosen to live for the wider community rather than our own advantage. So let's get practical. First thing we need to do to address environmental injustice is choose to feel. We've got to feel the injustice of the way our consumeristic and materialistic world treats creation. It's not okay. Secondly, you might have guessed what these three are all going to be if you were here last week. Secondly, we've got to take responsibility and learn. You know, part of the reason I haven't sat here and listed all the things we could do is that, again, our, our, part of the journey is learning. Part of the journey is feeling the pain of injustice and acting to alleviate it. It's not doing what Adam has said we should do to be good people on a Sunday morning once. We need to be those who feel the cry of injustice. And because of that, we learn about what it is doing around the world. We need to learn about how our actions contribute. And there are many ways which you may never even have considered. Let's see one of those as we go on to number three. Take responsibility, act. It's not enough just to think. It's not enough just to feel. We've got to act. And as I said at the beginning, a lot of this action, it needed to happen yesterday. And a lot of the action needs to take place at governmental level. And that makes us feel really small and insignificant. Here's the reality. Our government aren't doing anything until they know that it's not going to cost them votes. And so what we actually need is lots of individuals to act and to talk about their actions so that society changes to such a degree that the government have to come along with it. This is never going to be done top down. Nehemiah, he took radical action to cut the poison of economic injustice out of the people of God in Jerusalem. He chose to advantage the community even though it disadvantaged him. And as I said last week, that's what that final part of the chapter 
in terms of all the people he fed with his own food is all about. He's saying, look, guys, this costs me, but I'm here for the community, not for myself. And so here's a starter for 10. I'm not going to list you loads of things that you need to do this afternoon, but I want to help us to start thinking. How much waste goes on in your house? Last year, 6.6 million tonnes of food was thrown away by households in the UK. Let me make that real for us. For an average family, that meant they were putting pretty much a £20 note in the bin every week. Wow. Although there's more to it than that, because all of the food took nutrients out of the ground and lots of it replaced those nutrients with chemicals instead. It was then transported around the world, uh, changing the chemical composition of our atmosphere a little bit more. It was then industrial pro industrially processed uh, and was transported some more before making its way into our bins. We would have been better putting a 20 pound note in the bin each week in terms of environmental cost. Do you see how starting to think about this issue requires fundamental change in our thought process. So we need to take responsibility and act. Uh, and there's the first place we've got to start is in prayer. We've got to change our actions too. I believe as we pray, God does change our hearts and that does change our actions, but we do have to decide to respond to the things going on in our hearts. There's a, a wonderful um, collaboration between God's spirit and our independent free will going on here. And the first thing we need to do is ask God to change our thinking. Friends, we've, we need to be discipled by God into a new way of life. The materialistic and consumeristic age that we live in has shaped our approach to life. And we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, not just in how we see ourselves, not just in how we relate to people of other races and cultures, as we saw last week, but in how we relate to and care for the creation that God has entrusted to us. The consequences of that care is a matter of justice. So it must matter to us as those who are building a community of hope. We've got to pray that God changes our thinking. We've got to choose to act with kindness. Kindness is considering the good of others above yourself. It's the key to undoing injustice. I said last week, friends, kindness is a fruit of the spirit. This is what we should be growing into as we live lives full of the spirit and immersed in God's word. We are truly sorry for where we have belittled the scope of what Jesus has done. We take seriously those words in Colossians 1 about him reconciling all things to himself. God, we recognise that you care deeply for this creation, that it ultimately is yours and you made it for yourself, not for us. And so, God, we are praying that this would be a moment where we would truly feel the injustice of what's happening in the world around us, that by your spirit, you would move our hearts and that you would compel us to action as individuals and as a community. And as such, that we would be built into being a community of hope. Hope in our own lives, hope for the world around us, hope for our town and the world a long, long way away where we'll never see the effects. But our actions have consequences that do affect there. 
God, we pray, come by your spirit. Soften our hearts, change our hearts, change our thinking. Help us to be true disciples of you in this area, not disciples of our world. In Jesus' name, amen.